Hello, and welcome back to Author Chats, the Quarto Group's exclusive podcast for enlightening conversations with authors, editors, illustrators, and more. I'm your host, Mel Shewitt, and today I'm talking to Vita Moreau, author of High Five to the Hero. Vita is an educator, artist, writer, and mom whose recent book, The Whale, was nominated for a CILIP Carnegie and Kate Greenaway medal. In High Five to the Hero, we meet 15 favorite male heroes who are celebrated for the power of their hearts instead of the power of their swords, and we get a chance to read fairy tales retold for a new generation of boys. Let's chat with Vita Moreau. author of Power to the Princess and High Five to the Hero. And this is particularly exciting because we're recording live, like next to each other, which is super exciting. So let's start by talking about what these books are about in your own words and how I love using the word duology, so I'm going to use it as much as I can, how the duology came about in the first place. Oh my gosh. Uh, Well, these books are really a place to expand and stretch and provoke existing gendered stereotypes that arise and shape fairy tales and folklore, Um, particularly a kind of strong European canon of stories that are very well-known kind of universally, I think, and really shape storytelling um, in all kinds of formats and genres. You asked about duality? Duology. Duology. (laughs) Which is like a trilogy, but for two books. (gasps) It's That's a, like an it's amazing a newer word, word for me. I love it. It's brilliant. Um, it's like to literature what diptych is to two-dimensional art. My mom calls excited. me a diptych. Oh, I'm oh. just kidding. <laughs> Are you a Pisces? <laughs> I am a Pisces. Okay. <laughs> I know so many great Pisces. Weird. Oh my god. <laughs> I'm so glad I asked. Well, that clarify that like just brings it all into focus um duologies I love I mean it's so great that you raised that I love um pairs and duos and partnerships and I've always been part of a working partnership um I love it's like one of my favorite things about work is thinking about either my illustrator partner or my editorial partner um but with these two books it was really thinking about two sides of a shared or a shared universe. Um, when I finished the first book, Power to the Princess, I was had already started to um, really massage and push around some normative stereotypes around gender, around really strictly binary gender, um, and kind of pressing uh, and stretching out the expression of those things. And so it felt really natural to try and do that again um, and focused on the boys and men in these stories in the universe of fairy tales um, and kind of this enchanted world where you can play with things like this. These stories have been told again and again, and every time they're told, the storyteller of the time has the opportunity to lay on top of their telling Um, a set of values or priorities or interests or norms that they're puzzling with in their their moment as a storyteller. And so it was great to be able to do that not only once, but really twice and feel like I got to do it um, real breadth. Yeah. 
And you were, so you're here today to do a presentation, which you've already done, and you did an amazing job. So I wanted to talk about something that you talked about in the presentation. You mentioned that you pulled stories. So like you have one character, but one character has many stories across many cultures. So how did you sort of zero in on the stories that you wanted to tell? And how did you just, how did you choose the characters? Because there's so many characters out there with so many stories. So how, let's just, we'll stick with high five to the hero. How did you choose the heroes that you wanted to talk about? And how did you choose the versions of the stories that you told? Oh, that's so nice. Okay, so how did I pick those characters? Um, that actually was something that came first. I think there's a couple different ways that I work. One of the ways is that I take kind of a giant survey and then I sift it all out and figure out uh, what stands out to me or what builds dynamics in storytelling. Where am I reaching different um, peaks, valleys, ideas, themes, geographic references, but with heroes, it kind of was the other way around. I looked at really who those heroes were that I wanted to learn more about and take apart and put back together. And so the uh, book plan for heroes really was coming up with that list of 15 characters that I wanted to know more about. And some of them I knew nothing about. Like the What's story Prince Charming's of the snowman. Name? Yeah, Prince Charming. <laughs> so there is one original story. There is Prince Charming, which is, I'm glad you brought that up. That was a chance for me to really insert myself in kind of the canon of fairy tale storytelling and really think like, hey, if I'm making, curating a collection of characters um, that represent the breadth and kind of an extended expanded experience of boys and men in these stories, who's really central to that? Whose story maybe hasn't been explored? And what it's like when they're, um, a human experience has been reduced to just like a stand-in that doesn't even get a name. That was kind of hard. I was like, when I really When difficult. I talk about this book and I pitch the book, I say that Prince Charming just wants people to know what his name is. Because they do become standouts. They become... Basically just figureheads. They don't yeah. mean anything. And I think that's what happens a lot in iconography or um, the kind of distilling of a, a trope or a span of characteristics into one sole entity. Um, it's just very, very limiting. And in particular in expressions of characters who are boys or men, that is really rigid and limiting. Um, and it's reflective in all kinds of other ways um, in our society and our culture that are just as narrow, frankly. Like I think about as the parent of a son, my son has a really limited palette from which to choose from in clothing that's created with just him in mind. But when he looks outside of that into clothes that are for girls and women or people of other ages or clothes that feel sort of less binary, which is kind of tricky to do, just now, but I think it'll get a little bit easier. Um, then that narrow field opens up a little bit, but you really have to push to find that. Um, and it's really hard, that distillation into just one single thing. It's also a ton of pressure um, to feel like, oh, there's just one version of what it's like to be, I don't know, successful or admired or, um, you masculine know, or power yeah or have some um an expression of power that people want to be around that are attracted to that want to work with and sit with and listen to and talk to and collaborate with that really should be broad that really can't be narrow 
because um, then you miss out on lots of great potential leaders and thinkers and dreamers out there. Yeah, so these books deal a lot with issues of self-image, confidence, LGBTQ advocacy, um, disability. So I would love to know what your personal connection is to these topics and why why you chose to explore them now. Thank you for noticing those things. Yeah. I try and write both covert and overt, where these things are um, where different kinds of people and constellation of family and expression of gender and geography and origin story um, really both feel normative and broad, but also do feel fixed and recognizable. Someone can look at the book and say, oh, I'm reading about King Arthur, and yeah, he's an adoptee like me, and can really see that in there in a way that's kind of both overt and covert. It's sort of normalized in the space, but also a really important part of the identity of that character. Um, so it was really important to me to look into my own life and think about what that's been like for me as someone who has a family constellation that is transracial, that includes adoptees, includes different ethnicities and religions and different um, expressions of what a couple or a parent can look like. Um, my family is very sort of indicative of lots of families. It's filled with... Um, People coming together in blended families. It's full of divorce and separation and loss. It's filled with um, people claiming identities and taking up space in cultures and ethnicities and race in really empowering ways and also um, confronting obstacles in those same spaces, understanding how hard it is to do that. Um, and I wanted to be sure that the characters in the spiritual world that I created um, were imbued with my own experience of those things so that I could write from truth. Something I always talk about with um, young writers and students and educators is writing truthfully. I always write about things that are true to me in my life um, because I feel like they'll be true for the characters that I've created. And I try and build really like trustworthy, steadfast characters so that readers can really believe that these things are happening to them. Are you a full-time writer? I am, yeah. I am a full-time creative professional. So I do um, work as a writer for children, and then I also do some screenwriting, and I also um, work on books with my husband and work partner, Ethan Marone, where I take more of a... Um, artistic directorial role and we work a lot on visual art together but yeah that's, beautiful. That's, what are you what are you guys working on what are you working on and are you working on yeah, anything together both I always have two irons or more several irons. Fire. several <laughs> irons keep things hot sure um on my own work I really um so enjoyed sitting in fairy tale land for a couple of years, and now I'm going to sit in the land that I actually live in, and I'm making Morgan two pieces that are very um, environment and the natural world driven, and they are both fiction and sort of folklore adjacent, and really looking at stories of um, environmental. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, Impact environmental features oh. so stories of um what it's like to be a volcano and what it's like to be an island and what it's like to be a glacier um and 
sort of really thinking about the lore and the sort of language of love that we have when we talk about the environment and we talk about the natural world. There's, it's easy to, when you kind of disassociate or divorce yourself from something, then it's easy to exploit it or not take care of it or pretend you don't need to really give it your greatest attention. But if you kind of fall in love with the world outdoors, it's hard to ignore it um, and treat it poorly. So it's sort of a chance to, so for people to fall in love with the natural world and want to maintain that healthy relationship. Yeah, what uh, <laughs> age is that? Aimed at? So I think that'll actually likely be a similar age range. I really love this sort of. 6 to 12, 8 to 10 readership space. Um, when I work uh, on author visits with kids, it's the body of students who give me the most important feedback and inspiration and ask great probing questions and are really naturally curious about these things and kind of spark that curiosity in me. And then I'm working on a series about the world um, beneath trees that's made up of tree fungus that are really um, kind of sophisticated and have a life that is not so unlike the life above ground, um, where there's lots of alliances and drama and um, hard work and relationships. Is that nonfiction? Um, I think it's going to be fiction forward. Okay. But in the back or sort of in panels in both of these projects, there'll be space to talk about what's really happening. So if I write a story about what it's like to be a volcano, then at the end of it will be maybe a page of conversation about um, what's imperiled in current sort of volcanic and oceanographic life, as it were. And same for the fungus book. Um, we follow a fungus on sort of its adventure and journey and then at the end you have a chance to understand some of the truth that's behind the fantasy in that book that sounds fascinating. <laughs> a little bit about <laughs> um i've got one final question of for course. you many of our listeners are librarians and i think they would all love to know two things one is do you remember the first book that you checked out of a library i definitely don't so if you don't that's fine and then the second question will be, what does it mean to you to now have your books in libraries that re young readers can check out? Oh, what an amazing duology of questions. <laughs> Did I use that word right? Sure. <laughs> I'm not sure. I just learned it. It's a good one. Yeah. Um, oh, I, I really, really want to remember the first book I checked I out of a library. But I honestly don't think I could because I've been a patron of the library um, since being pre-verbal, um, and so I wouldn't necessarily be able to remember that. Um, but just to say that the library has always, always, always been a part of my life. Um, growing up in Minneapolis, we have an amazing library system in a city that really um, devotes a lot of pride and attention to making those spaces community hubs. And I do remember getting my first baby blue library card and signing my name on the back with a Sharpie. And I loved participating in the summer reading programs and you would go to the library to read and fill out these like tedious, like little pre-Excel docs. <laughs> um, like, And then the librarian would like kind of appraise it and celebrate and congratulate you for having explored those books and you got like a bookmark or stickers and um I do really remember working on uh, this is before the internet so working on 
a project or report and my mom would say, I'd be like, I don't know where to begin. And she would say, oh, just call the library. And I would just call the library, like little, little, little Pita voice. Hi, <laughs> I'm Pita and I'm a second grader at such and such school and I'm doing a project on bats. Can you help me? And just feeling like the library was the first stop. It was like the primary destination. And to be fair, I still do that. Whenever I have a new project or contract, my first outreach are my librarian friends. And I say, hey, I'm going to do this next project. It's about tree fungus. Who do I need to read? What do I need to know? Do you know anyone who's like really into this or has information about this? And that's how I met my amazing sort of guide and mentor, Janet, for these fairy tale books. It was that same process. I'm doing this feminist princess book. Who's the right person for me to get to know? Um, so, and the other side of the question was, how does it feel to have my books in libraries? It feels amazing. And people are always sending me like shelfies and pictures of my books on different bookshelves. And the ones that are so powerful and exciting are the library ones because I know that the reach and the democratization of my work is really tangible and strong in that way. And that feels really good to me. Those are some big words. I know. I love big words. <laughs> Duology. Thank you so much for chatting with me, Vita. My pleasure. This has been a delight. Yeah. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to listen to Author Chats. Both High Five to the Hero and Power to the Princess are available now worldwide, so please visit your local bookstore, library, or castle to find a copy for you and your readers. Special thanks to Scott Holmes for our theme music.